So, I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests, and when people send them in, I'll answer listener questions. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters, including new supporter Robert O'Leary, who make this show possible. Patrons receive perks like once-a-month novel progress reports. At every level of patron you get this, with like you know watching the numbies climb up in terms of words written and that kind of thing, but also a list of sword and sorcery or sword and sorcery adjacent books that I've been reading as part of my research for the whole thing, and a little note at the end, usually with some thoughts about like you know what happened in this month, what exactly did I learn or overcome or whatever. If you're not a patron already, you can check out all the other perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Last episode we discussed my novella-length riff off of People of the Black Circle, my favourite Conan story. This time around we're moving on to a story I have given the holding title, maybe I'll keep it, I don't know, it feels kind of cheeky, of Vogue Loses It, which will currently as things stand be the second of three stories that make up the third quarter of the novel. In discussing my outlining of this story, I'll be covering things like what's good or maybe not so good to kick down the road for future you to deal with, the challenge of avoiding just creating like bad pastiche, you know, sort of bad copy of something when you're trying to riff on things that you love, and how focusing on character can really help with solving all kinds of other issues in the story. Alright, let's head on over to hear how I did it. Okay, so we begin with the throwing down ideas stage. Arguably, I've thought about this story more than the end of this quarter of the book, titled The Gibbet. The Gibbet? The Gibbet. <laughs> Partly because The Gibbet was the first story outline I actually did for the novel, so it felt done, even though, as I'll get into next time, it really wasn't. Feeling really stuck with the story I discussed last time, I did something I've actually tried really hard not to do with this for fear of getting kind of muddled and having a bunch of half-finished scraps all over the show. I leapt ahead without having finished that story to work on this one for a page in my notebook back in May 6th of 2022. Originally, this was going to be my, you know, Vaux encounters an ancient city in the desert with spooky crap in it kind of story, but then that had too much overlap with some of the stuff I wound up doing in the previous tale. And so I thought, okay, maybe it's going to be more of a riff on Tower of the Elephant, which if you haven't read that story, don't worry. Essentially, Conan goes to steal something from a tower and finds something much weirder than he was expecting. So yeah, I was thinking it might be kind of a riff on that then, plus the sort of continuity nod of there being a new friend that Vo makes, who would be kind of like Tiravan from the second quarter, her Greymaster-style thief buddy, and that that friend would wind up being sacrificed at the end of the tale, as a kind of fall from grace where Vaux 
living entirely for herself and her own gratification and feeling distrustful of making new friends because of what happened in the second quarter of the novel with Terravan makes the meaner call when we get to a moment of, oh no, the treasure's falling over the edge or whatever, and so is the friend, who do you save? Getting to that point and having it really land, having it really feel like, yeah, okay, I guess you know, that was surprising, but Vo would do that, and oh man, how do I feel about her now, you know? Making that really work is mandatory for this tale, because it sets up the end of this quarter of the novel, with the gibbet and Vo being stuck in one of those horrible things, hanging by the roadside, and us being like, how do we feel about her? <laughs> as well as it's kind of the beginning, or really the point where she has sort of a fall from grace, and that's important for the back quarter of the book. Will I mention this moment specifically in the gibbet or in anywhere in the back end of the novel? Probably not. I mean, definitely not in the gibbet, probably not for the back end of the novel, just because I haven't decided how much I'll indulge a little bit of continuity in the final story. I still stand by what I say about this novel being a thing that you can flip through, go to any tale, and enjoy it. But if you read them in order, you'll get rewarded. And if you read them in order, you'll remember this moment in the gibbet in the back end of the novel. So yeah, still very important, even though I'm trying not to box in the reader with continuity lines. Speaking of stories informing each other, my opening image for this wound up getting axed because it felt way too similar to a moment in the previous novella-length tale. Originally, I was thinking back on May 6th, why not start with Vo crawling, bursting from the remains of a battlefield? or perhaps finishing the only other person left on the battlefield, then realizing she is on her own in need of capital to begin raising a mercenary company or even full-on army to continue her sort of warlordly aspirations that we're getting into in this corner of the book. Thanks to the battle, a nearby city would be in chaos and largely unguarded. Soldiers, you know, dead, running around, whatever. Vo decides to fall back on her thieving skills and begins marching off towards it, Perhaps after seeking the body of the company blacksmith, which may have some passable tools she can repurpose for thieving, you know, doings. So yeah, this again feels like continuity, right? She was a thief in the second quarter of the book, and obviously if you've read that before this story, you'll be like, oh, okay. But Conan absolutely had a thieving portion of his career. Remember I mentioned Tower of the Elephant. And the blacksmith little connection, if I put that in there, we'll see. Um, yeah. That's just kind of fun because of her mum and also because of Conan's parents, which were mentioned at some point as uh, one of you know, the father probably being a blacksmith. However, in the end, I decided the bursting from underneath a whole bunch of dead bodies felt way too much like a moment in the previous story. So that ends up changing. We'll get to there. And so then I found myself thinking in my notes here, you know, if this has gone from Ancient City in the Desert to Tower of the Elephant plus the continuity nut, blah, blah, blah. What new things do I, Oliver Brackenbury, bring to it? How does those specific qualities as a character separate it from mere pastiche? You know, how do I not just make this Vonan instead of Conan? So I was pretty happy. I mean, I obviously have some idea of Vo in my head, but I was pretty happy that I made kind of a reference sheet for myself for like, what's Vo's deal, not only in general, but specifically at the different quarters of the book, including this third one. And I just sort of reviewed that quickly, and I was like, oh yeah, as ever, Vo is a storyteller, although in this quarter she's a disillusioned one, an island barbarian, a cynical ex-hero, someone who isn't afraid to cry, which feels like an extra big deal in these sort of quote-unquote more masculine Conan-type stories, and who still very much carries feelings from her last experience with Terramam, right? 
So I got that down, and it was a good reminder for when I eventually came back to the story closer to early June, around like the 10th or 11th here. At which point I started circling theme. You know, I'd reviewed some of my goals for this part of the book as well, and one was that, you know, Howard's tales are known for many things, including kind of like philosophizing of a certain bent, very moody kind, and I felt like, you know, that could definitely kick in here in this story, if not also in the gibbet following it. It could be on the nature of fearing a new friendship due to hurt in the past, and the darkness of cutting off new connections to protect oneself. This paid off a little further down the line. Plot-wise, I'm thinking, okay, well this story is all about Vo choosing to save the brig treasure that'll let her go back to the life of a warlord. I also then got an idea for a great ending image, which I'll save for the narrative of this podcast relating it to you uh, for the actual end, but then I was like, okay, wait, 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 let's focus here. Who exactly is the new thief pal, and how do they and Vo meet? This got me thinking, okay, well, thieving pals, I mean, that tends to make me think of Faffer and Grey Mouser and Fritz Library stories, which I discussed at length in the second quarter episodes of this whole podcast project, uh, but in a nutshell, lighter, more swashbuckling kind of tone, and I need to remind myself, this is not that. Therefore, the meeting between Vo and this new pal cannot be in that same kind of, oh, we just bump into each other while we're both pulling the same heist, and gosh, we turn to buddies pretty quickly, haha, kind of thing. To help get my head back into the Howardian way of doing things, I decided to reread a Conan thieving story. I'd been looking at Tower of the Elephant already uh, for other reasons related to the podcast, that whole episode with Sophie there, so I decided to read a different one, Rogues in the House. Not to be confused with the excellent sword and sorcery podcast of the same name. You can read the story for free online, I will link to it in the show notes, but don't worry, you don't have to read it to follow what I'm going to be going on about in here. In a nutshell, it's a very similar thing to Tower of the Elephant in that Conan breaks into somewhere to do a thing, finds out there's some surprises, oh dear, oh dear, where does it go from there? But whereas Tower of the Elephant relies a bit more on the weird, this is a story, Rogues, where there's a bit more political intrigue going on. There's a bit more like Conan's wandered into somebody else's story rather than forging his own. And that did shape this tale for me. The other thing is that Rogues in the House, in particular, I mean, all stories try to deal in this, but in particular, Rogues in the House, I felt fed off of a series of misdirects and defying expectations. And so I started thinking, okay, well, that maybe could be important for this story too, especially because I want to keep you kind of guessing for when we get to that big moment at the end and Vo chooses the treasure, not the friend. That said, on the other hand, if you just forever are doing the other thing, the unexpected thing, then that becomes a pattern unto itself as well, and the reader is like, oh, okay, well, I know what's going to happen here. It's going to be the less obvious thing, the other thing, left instead of right, or whatever. So, can't get too into defining expectations, otherwise you just set up different expectations. But okay, again, you can hear me kind of spiraling off a little bit. Wasn't this supposed to be the part where Oliver figures out who the new thief pal is and how they meet? Yes, I was thinking that of myself when I was doing this outlining. So I pulled myself back for a second and was like, okay, what are like the questions I really need to answer right now? The first of three questions that came to mind was, why does new pal, unnamed yet, choose Vo to work with as opposed to anybody else in the entire damn city? <laughs> well, I thought about it and was like, desperation. That's why you would maybe choose some complete stranger who has just come into town, and even if they don't give away that they're the leader of the army that just got crushed outside the walls, they're probably covered in blood and bruises and looking pretty intense, to say the least. Plus, Vo is a very big and scary-looking character when she wants to be. 
I thought about a couple of possibilities, and then I was like, oh, wait a minute. The best thing, really, would be if this thief had had a partner that they had just pulled a heist with, but then that partner backstabbed them, cut them out of the whole thing, or maybe even cut them out before pulling the heist so they could have all the sweet, sweet treasure or loot or whatever to themselves, and that's left the thief that Vo's going to team up with feeling really sore and really desperate because now they've been reduced in standing, you know, they're on their own instead of having a partner, and they hate their former partner now because of what just went down, and friendly betrayal, well, that's kind of what Vo felt like happened in the last Vo and Tiravan story, so we get some lovely mirroring of motivations here. It also occurred to me that this would give the thief a good answer if Vo herself is skeptical of being approached by a stranger, you know, that she could literally say something like, well, we've only just met, and you want to cut me in on some revenge heist situation there, rob your old partner, and he could be like, I've known my old partner since childhood, and he still betrayed me, so whatever. I would think they'd also be desperate to just make a new friend to try and patch over the hurt of the betrayal, and probably to leave this city, which is something that an exciting foreigner like Vo would hint at being able to make happen. Well, make happen safely through the war-torn land, etc., etc. I mean, Vo, again, big, tough, intimidating, full warlord mode at this point in her career. And so feeling like I'd settled the first of my three questions, I decided to quickly name the guy, because I was getting tired of referring to him as the thief, the guy, and I thought, you know, the big thing here is that we've had Vo's adventures take her all the way across continents or whatever to land in the same kind of fantasy South Asian, you know, not exactly India, but not exactly not, that Tiravam is from. And so Tamil was the language I looked to for Tiravam's name as kind of a rough basis for the culture of where they are from. So this guy should be named something from the Tamil language. And I experimented with a few things. At first I thought, well, Tiravam is fluid in Tamil because of the gender fluid thing. So I was like, well, we maybe make this guy solid, but the name sounded too close to Tiravam. So I've tried a few other words, and in the end I thought, yeah, well, you know what? He's, he's dead, right? His death is vital to this story. And so I looked that up, and it's Iranta. <laughs> so Iranta the thief, dead. So yes, as I was figuring out the answer to this first of my three questions, I started thinking, you know, yeah, maybe I'm actually going to tilt to that windville. I'm actually going to have Vo and Iranta meet in the scuzziest tavern in the city. You know, a den of villainy and iniquity, blah, 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 you know. It's been done a million times, but that sometimes doesn't make me shy away from trying something. It makes me want to really lean into it and see what I can do to make it mine. More on that when I lay out the whole story top to bottom in quick event order. Meanwhile, what was the second bloody question, Oliver? It was, so what do we expect in a high story centered on two new partners becoming friends? So I just made a list and was kind of like, well, I guess we expect a death trap or two, an evil sorcerer perhaps, or similar, like a scheming priest, a weird monster of some kind, secret passages, local political intrigue, perhaps weird nature, magic, science, who knows what it is. And beside these, I actually ended up writing, you know, a few things like, what if it was instead of a death trap, it was a life trap? What even is that? <laughs> or a good sorcerer that causes problems somehow, or an uncannily normal person instead of a weird monster. And uh, maybe they create passages instead of find secret ones. So they're more kind of like how modern burglars do with literally cutting through walls instead of messing about picking locks. That was kind of fun while I did it, but then immediately I was like, eh, I don't like the checklist approach to this. Feels like a recipe for uninspired writing. I should focus on character. 
And maybe now also I'm in need of a thematic conflict because yes, we're definitely moving on from just throwing ideas down to that part where I need to figure out, okay, well, what are the guiding ideas of this whole thing? But first, let's answer that third of the three questions that occurred to me where I was thinking, you know, betrayal is plainly what excites me about this story and masking that betrayal with a mirror of Vogue becoming friends with Tiravam. Kind of continuity. Anything else? At first, I was like, maybe not much. You know, I suppose trying to tell a more Conan-style thief tale as opposed to the Favre and Grimauser ones. Uh, messing with expectations. But this is all concept and style. So, I thought, I'm feeling lost here. Bring it back to character. Iranta wants something so badly, he takes a big risk teaming up with someone he just met. Someone who straight up tells him, you know, everyone I was just working with, like her mercenary company or whatever, raiding party, is dead. <laughs> and I want money so I can go get a new version of the same operation going again. Meanwhile, still thinking on character, Vo wants to protect herself so badly that she does something terrible. So perhaps this is a story about desire making us do dumb things? Vo desires to avoid hurt, which really feels like fear and justifying ill behavior with it. Could be perhaps about knowing something isn't going to end well, but convincing yourself you'll be the exception, or it'll work out anyway. At which point it occurred to me, and it's kind of a side note, you know, the target of the theft could be Aranta's now former partner, whose betrayal has elevated them to some kind of position of power. But the ex-partner knows every noteworthy thief and killer in town, would see them coming from a mile away, so perhaps that's also feeding into Aranta needing an outsider like Vo. And then I started thinking about that, and I was like, yeah, you know, I do feel myself warming to the tragedy of Iranta seeking Vo, because he's been betrayed only to then be betrayed by Vo. I feel really bad for Iranta when I imagine that, and that feeling is strong, and that means I'm engaged. Oh, that's a good sign. I want the reader to feel engaged. Can I make them feel the way I'm feeling? Guess I gotta tell a good story, huh? And so I feel like the common bond between Vo and Iranta is they both know loss and both want to rebuild. Ah, we're getting there. And so from here, I made another page of kind of all over the place thoughts that had occurred to me while I was writing this, you know, about like busting walls, anti-secret passages or whatever. Uh, and maybe Aranta could probably be rewarded well for turning Vo in because she's the warlord that just tried to sack the city and got trounced outside its walls. And Vo points this out and he's like, I would never, you know, I would never betray you. <laughs> uh, stuff like that kind of comes to mind, thinking about how the story would feature Lovecraftian fantasy horror, blah, blah. But ultimately, I got to that thematic statement from what I just told you about. And I thought it could be, sometimes how we choose to protect ourselves hurts us most of all. Followed by a classic side note, phrase this better. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I guess I still got to phrase that better. But for now, sometimes how we choose to protect ourselves hurts us most of all is the guiding thematic statement of this story. With Vo essentially hurting her soul, so to speak, trying to protect herself from being hurt again, like she was by Tiravim, and Iranta hurting himself by protecting himself from becoming bitter, essentially, right? But just by throwing his trust at the you know first person he meets who he thinks could help him get on with his life and pull a revenge heist on his old partner. I felt like I would need to find a way to express this thematic statement through the old partner as well, but I hadn't really figured out who the heck they were other than someone who's up for thieving and up for betraying and used to know Iranta in a very positive way as opposed to the very negative way when we meet Iranta in the story. At this point, I felt a lot better about the story and was like, you know what? Focusing on character got me this. 
I'm going to go back over my Vo file again with a fine toothed comb and really look at every single line I've got about her quirks and behaviors at this point in her life. So I did. I wrote down a lot of stuff from that. Too much really to get into here, though it did get as specific and detailed as things like, you know, Vo living only for herself and not really caring about heroism or how she looks to others and her, you know, general patience combining to make it so that she frequently has food in the corner of her mouth from whatever she ate most recently, <laughs> like that level of detail. So other than the food in the corner of the mouth thing, I will only tell you of one really, really key detail that I was not thinking of this story at all when I decided it, but boy did it come in handy, which is this. After the first quarter of the novel, she has an almost overcorrective cynicism because of her experience trying to be a hero and what happens to her in the final part of that first quarter, the story called Disgrace the Stone. So I thought, hang on, that's a perfect fit for this story. It clearly fits into her decision to let Iranta drop and pick the treasure instead, to quickly hate Iranta's previous partner. She's cynical. She's just going to be like, yeah, of course he betrayed you. People are jerks. And it would be in conflict with the new friend exciting energy flowing from her new partnership with Iranta in the earlier parts of the tale. Yes, this is a great tension to explore, I think, and I look forward to doing so when I write the actual pages for this. So after that, I thought, well, okay, this is kind of a dark mirror to Kinship in Coltoom. That's episode 28 if you want to dig it up in the archives. But don't worry, you don't have to. It's the one where her and Teravan become friends. And I was like, yeah, okay, uh, maybe Aranta could see Vo has a kind of almost PTSD from her experiences and offers her some kind of drugs to help. Maybe even the same drug that's seen in Kinship when her and Teravan become buddies. Thinking about how in Kinship, Vo and Tiravam do meet in not a tavern exactly, more of a drug den, but whatever, they quickly leave it and go off to other places, I thought, you know, that's another way to avoid getting too sunk into the tradition, cliche, whatever, of the tavern meeting. I could have them leave the tavern here pretty quickly, and perhaps take the conversation somewhere more private, something someone recently betrayed might want to do, and novel, and displaying of Iranta's character. I don't know, a safe house, a rooftop with a view he likes, something to figure out later. At this point, almost like fill in the metaphor here, you know, a baby chick starting to burst out of its shell, I started to be like, oh, okay, sequence of events, a tavern meet, a private chat, then the heist, then things go pear-shaped in the heist, leading to a chase, a treasure in hand, we get to the big choice, and then maybe a hard cut to that closing image I thought of, and we'll tell you about when we get to the end of this episode. Okay, not bad, but that's literally three sentences, not even sentences, it's just like words with arrows connecting them. Not exactly an outline for a story. What else do I still need to figure out? I thought about it and was like, okay, well, what are the actual details of the heist, right? What actually happens? And what are the details of Iranta's backstory that shapes it? How will I escalate the tension? What is the emotional arc of this new friendship that helps maximize the impact of Vo's betrayal? And so I started figuring out some stuff that I'll get to about, you know, Vo maybe indulging in more of her femme side, which would be a little unexpected in this context, into how she decides to distract some guards and let Iranta get the drop on them, and then they both, you know, deal with them before going inside the place, the tower. Still figuring that out. Before I got to an aspect that I thought, you know, I really want to crank up in this sort of the dark and dangerous magic and or like Lovecraftian horror of sword and sorcery, which if you've read the book or listened to the first episode of this podcast recently, you may recognize as two of the seven qualities of sword and sorcery listed in Brian Murphy's excellent book, Flame and Crimson, A History of Sword and Sorcery. His flexible definition, by the way, having these seven qualities, but saying, you know, if you get like four or five or just, you know, enough 
in a story for it to pass the personal gut check of the reader that, hey, congratulations, you've written a sword and sorcery tale. So trying to figure out how these would fit into the heist and all that gnarly stuff, I began by reviewing Brian's book, specifically my copy, with the highlighted bits that have been benefiting me ever since I first dragged those highlighters across the pages. A few scattered lines that caught my eye was about how sword and sorcery magic does not follow logical rules or rational trains of thought, it quite often destroys the user. Hmm, come back to my thematic statement about how you protect yourself can be how you wind up getting hurt the most. Hmm. And other things like talk of cosmic pessimism, which I thought could infect Vo through her overcompensating cynicism as we get near the end of the story. Okay, cool, cool. Unexplained forces of chaos erupt at random and at best can be held temporarily at bay. Hmm, sounds exciting. And sword and sorcery is compressed to this quote, is a literature of decay, entropy, and violent overthrow. Hmm. And thus through this, I got to one of the big ideas that really brings the story together. I was like, what if the target, former partner, the betrayer, is now enthralled to some kind of cosmic horror and actually welcomes Iranta with like a clenched smile and desperate hope their recently betrayed partner will help free them? Bo becomes protective then of her new budding friendship with Iranta because it's being threatened by the old buddy. Yes! Bringing it back to character. This is good. Gonna do this, I think. Maybe we even really hit the nail on the head by having, you know, the person who's in the grip of this cosmic horror come out with lines like, you know, it's so early in my new friendship, maybe I could still be set free of it. Clearly talking some of those more skeptical thoughts out loud. And it was this which gave me the name of the betrayer, the former partner of Aranta, which uh, in Tamil is... Pachiram, I'm probably boning the pronunciation, gonna have to have a think about that later, uh, which means in Tamil, vessel. As in a vessel for the cosmic horror, whoa, yeah, alright. So, our three main characters in this are Vo, Iranta, the recently betrayed thief who befriends her, and Pachiram, the vessel ahem, for the cosmic horror who recently betrayed Iranta. At this point I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, cosmic horror thoughts really gave me something here. Much like I felt about digging into character earlier, I think let's stop and dig deeper into this and see what other treasures it might yield. For me, that meant going to kind of my go-to book for thinking about cosmic horror and philosophy and horror and stuff in general, which is a book called In the Dust of Our Planet by Eugene Thacker, the first in a trilogy, but it works quite well on its own, discussing the intersection between horror and philosophy. I remembered a section in it which is very much about the idea of the magic circle and lots of different permutations of that, and it got me thinking, you know, what if the whole room they find Pateram in is the magic circle? Not the drawn circle on the floor in which they see him standing, but the actual boundaries of the room itself. And then, hey, wait, maybe maybe we go bigger. Maybe it's actually the whole tower. This is how I get tower. I'm thinking circles, right? Whole circular tower. And then I thought, what if maybe even the city walls of the city? But now that got a bit too silly. I couldn't figure a way to make that work. But yeah, okay, cool, cool, cool. Because I love the idea of thinking you know what the protective barrier is and finding out, no, no, wait, it's something else entirely and you're already where you don't want to be regarding that protective barrier. So okay, there was that fun, which I remembered before even opening the book because I've been through it many times. It's worth it, trust me. And 
I very quickly ran to page 62 in it where there's talk of, you know, how the magic circle is that which paradoxically reveals the hiddenness of the world in itself, essentially. Like, yeah, it's supposed to protect and hide away the horrible thing, but it's also evidence of the horrible thing, right? And as with Brian Murphy's lovely book, I had already highlighted the bejesus out of this thing, so I enjoyed going through those highlights and writing out ones that made sense to me for this tale in my notebook. One highlight that became very important was from page 136, where the sentence goes, the divine is dark because we have no concept of it. And so yeah, that's the concept of the divine darkness, which essentially can be boiled down to the limit of humanity's ability to know things is where God's, right, the divine begins. The limits of thought and experience start making me think of madness, plus just thinking of Lovecraftian-style horror in general. And so I was like, what if we called this thing Vo loses it? <laughs> is that too jokey? I don't know. What does that mean? It got more meaning pretty quickly. And so I thought, okay, Vo goes a little mad, perhaps, in the story. And seeking fresh experience, she rips open the door of every chamber above the one where they find the guy, uh, Pateram, right? The guy, the vessel of the terrible thing. And in doing so, by going up above, 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 you know, further in the tower, freeing God knows what more tangible, awful horrors, Vo is actually kind of finding something better because she can at least fight these things that have forms. Okay, all right. So maybe, yeah, definitely the thing that's in our vessel character is going to be formless, more of a creature of thought, which suggests continuity that I'm not going to make explicit with things like the creature that gets in Vo's mind in Disgrace the Stone. And, you know, also I'm thinking, yeah, Vo physically just needs to be fleeing upward in the tower, not down or across from it, because we need to be in a position where she can potentially drop the treasure or Aranta. But yes, the limits of thought and experience and what could horrify Vo so much she goes fleeing up and would rather deal with all kinds of other more physical horrors than deal with whatever is going on with Pateram. Oh ho, what if trying to name the unspeakable thing in the chamber, unspeakable is a classic Lovecraftian thing, it attracted me here, in the chamber where Vo and Aranta find Pateram, could be what slowly undid, let's say, an order of scribes, mystics, monks, those kinds of people, who ran this tower, who were whittled down to the one guy whose place Pateram unwittingly took, right? Like him and Aranta broke in, or he broke in without Aranta cutting him out of the whole thing uh, originally. And then, you know, he's heard this old order has lots of treasures, but there's only like one or two of them left. And so easy peasy, kills the monk, gets possessed by the thing, and is stuck there until Aranta comes to do revenge heisting with Vo at his side. Yes. And... How did trying to name an unspeakable thing undo this order and is now currently in the process of undoing Pateram? Perhaps each time someone tries to think of a way to refer to the thing, they lose that language permanently. And sure, maybe it starts with nonsense names that they come up with or historical knowledge where they're like, what if this old story of a demon called Billy, <laughs> uh, you know, what if this demon's Billy? And then they all of a sudden, like, Billy is completely erased from their ability to articulate words. And so this degradation of language, separate perhaps from the purpose the Order sought to fulfill, like protecting the kingdom from great evils that get walled up in their tower and they mind them, you know, a task, they grew incapable of explaining well enough to successive rulers so as to secure much funding. 
then the lack of proper funding and degraded language makes a reasonable excuse for why other horrors on higher floors are poorly secured and instructions for navigating them written most cryptically, right? Because how often do you have like kind of a puzzle for like what you should do to not get eaten by the thingy? Why is it a puzzle? In this case, it's not an intentional one. It's just really bizarre use of language because all kinds of words have been slowly getting rotted out of the heads of the people writing the warnings by the thing that is left down on the closest to the surface floor, I suppose, that's stuck in Pateram when we meet it. Thus, Bo and Eranta set off a chain of perverse calamities as they are forced up the tower by fear of losing further language. I'm thinking Bo literally loses the word it, right? She's like, well, what is it? It? It's her name for it. She loses it. I'm going to come back to that, but I really like the idea of the title being like she literally loses the word it, and Iranta loses the name of his friend, and whatever else helps me sell the horror. Doesn't terribly matter, Iranta's going to be dead at the end of the story. But Vo literally loses it, and then flees up through the tower, through the different floors with various horrors, which she can't understand how to navigate properly because the signage is terrible. <laughs> In fact, Things could become even worse. Perhaps uh, Vo and Iranta try to kill Pateram when they realize what's going on, crunching his head with her war hammer, but it doesn't kill him. And then he kind of swipes at them, and something about him touching Iranta rips a whole language out of Iranta, the one language that Iranta and Vo have in common to speak, making things even harder and driving a sort of further distance between them, ah, friendship, etc before they go ah and flee up the tower because Pateram perhaps gets in between them and going down back to the ground level where they first entered. Yeah, they, they flee upward through a few floors. I have fun putting them through hell in before we cut to the rooftop. Along the way, Vo is torn between thoughts of new friendship, you know, its promises and its dangers. And then we get to the rooftop. The tower begins to topple because of just literally like explosive, terrible crap that's happening on the lower floors due to all the chaos that's just happened. Both Treasure and Iranta fall. Vo can only save one. Cut to Vo looking back at the city. I'm thinking perhaps one horror costs Vo most of her clothes, but for like a bandera across her chest and like a thong or something. Very barbarian-y. It should also be like covered in filth and cuts and bruises and stuff. This isn't male gazy. This is like, oh, she's been reduced, right? Sidebar, it just occurs to me that good old Laura Mulvey's term, the male gaze, could use an update. Doesn't really acknowledge men who don't give a hoot about looking at women or women and non-binary folks who do give a hoot about looking at women. Huh. But yes, we cut to Vo, bruised, battered, mostly nude, looking back at the city. Unlike Coltum in the final Vo and Tiravam story, this city does wind up being destroyed by dark magic. You know, all the dark evil shit spilling out of the collapsed tower. The army scouts, perhaps, that are searching for Vo, the warlord that has been recently uh, seemingly vanquished, are racing back to see what the hell is going on. Vo hears their hoofbeats. She needs to hide for a minute. Thus, grubby and dusty and mostly nude barbarian hides under a half-shattered cart, let's say, and several of her dead men, embracing a sack filled with enough gems to hire a proper warlord's retinue. And thus I thought of a moment of, you know, Vo being like, why not sell some of these for money? You know, Vo uh, says is picking at gems needed to contain some other horror and you know, like a matrix of facets. But yes, Vo holding her sack of treasure that she traded Aranta's life for, grubby and cut up and bruised and all the rest, 
hiding underneath the bodies of the dead men she's going to replace with the you know coinage those gems gets her, trying to reassure herself she made the right decision. But she can't find the words. Ah, see what I did there? Yeah, so I just seeged into a series of events here because that's kind of what happened to me. I realized I was just doing it after I got past a certain point in reviewing the cosmic horror stuff from that book I mentioned. My strong recommendation to any writers listening to this is if you start to feel that energy and you're like, well, I wasn't doing this, but now it feels like I'm doing this. It's coming together. Oh, man, is just run with it. You can always go back and clean things up later or review them as I did. Uh, no real cleanup, actually. Not yet. Maybe when I come back to this a while from now when I'm doing the actual draft. But I did pause and go, OK, you know, bam, I wrote exclamation mark. I was so happy. I just wrote that on the page. And then I was like, OK, uh, real quick here. What do we got? Uh, so in the bar, Aranta meets Vo. Uh, perhaps uh, Aranta pulls Vo up from a pile of bodies that she's knocked unconscious in a bar brawl or whatever. So that gets me the image match thing that I want with the end with her crawling underneath a bunch of dead bodies, right? Then two, rooftop chat, settling out, you know, really what the whole thing is. Having a private chat away from other people after betrayal makes a lot of sense. And also when Vo is kind of a fugitive. Three, uh, have like an ambush outside the tower. Vo using her sort of feminine wiles in a way that she doesn't normally, which I thought would be kind of a fun surprise. And also it's her defying around his expectations of her just going with her warhammer and killing dudes. They enter for... Five, they find Pateram and the whole language thing happens. Six, the horror reveal. You know, the tower is the circle. You're already inside with the creature. <laughs> Fleeing upward through weird hell. You know, two or three floors of that. I really think that's an okay thing to kick ahead for myself, by the way, because I know the structure of the story. This is not a structure thing that has to be figured out to make everything that happens after it work. I can just amuse myself filling it in with weird, wild, wacky crap. So that comes back to what I mentioned at the very beginning of this whole recording about how I wanted to quickly touch upon knowing what's good or what's bad, quote unquote, to kick ahead to future you. Eight, rooftop decision, you know, catch Aranta, catch uh, the treasure. And then nine, we finish Bo's treasure, perhaps even pulling her below the bodies. It's so heavy and the bodies are kind of rotten now, but she like, actually steps on top of them and gets sucked down through them, you know, and has to stay due to the sounds of the hoofbeats that she hears. And there she ruminates. Yeah, yeah, this is satisfying. You know, I've got that opening ending image match thing that I personally have a lot of love for. I, I, it doesn't have to be in every story I write or read, but gosh, I love it. You know, a cool, lasting change to my character. She's literally lost the word it. <laughs> That's kind of a weird injury to carry with her. And an interesting writing challenge for me moving forward where Vo is, like the way she speaks is going to be permanently changed. She can't say it. Think about that. You know, uh, we've had a betrayal that hopefully feels earned. Yeah, yeah, feels good. You know, if any quarter of the book feels like it could use an extra story, it is the third quarter which this is in, uh, you know, to go from Vo's high adventure novella-length tale to this one, her sort of moral fall, and then her being stuck in a gibbet in the next story, uh, which we'll be discussing uh, next episode, before going into the final quarter, does feel quick, regardless of word count or implied off-camera adventures. Something to think about, you know, maybe I'll stick something else in there later, but for now, three stories, first one's much longer than the other two, and now, off we go into the next story, The Gibbet. Join me then for the challenge of telling a captivating story when your character is stuck in something smaller than a phone booth for basically the whole thing. So I'm Writing a Novel features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. 
If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to so I'm writing a novel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, Coffee, and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon.